from WBZ Chicago and the hum of the universe. This is Pleasure Town. Around the turn of the last century, a group of folk built their dream, a town where happiness was the main objective. But, as history has shown, there's a dozen thorns for every bloom. So ingratiate yourself and join us as we unravel Pleasure Town. Sigh, have I ever told you about the time I raided the women's dormitory at the Lewis School back in Oxford, Mississippi? Of course you have. We spend eternity together. I've heard every one of your stories seven times over. Look, it's not like I'm going to have any new memories. So humor me, will you? I don't believe I've had the honor of hearing that tale. Well, me and Stinky Joe snuck in through an open window stole all the girls' bloomers. You don't say. First time for me to have my hands on a pair of ladies' underwear. From that moment on, I was hooked. Guess you could call that my formative moment. Or perhaps this is always who you would have been. Could have been a dozen different dorms and a dozen different girls. Over time, it was a dozen different dorms and a dozen different girls. What's your point? My point is, I don't think the moment formed you. I think you were always going to be you. Just took the right pair of bloomers to wake you up to that reality. So would you say, then, that something happened to say, mud, to make him mud? Or was the man always going to be a murderer? We are born with a need for joy. Violence has to be taught. Yeah. Well, what if your joy is violence? Bulger was always so full of the happy stuff. I was never that full of the happy stuff, not even when I drank. So damn happy. He's a squealer. Aye, a squealer. I like to reach out and grab that waddling pouch of flesh under his chin, squeeze it with both my hands. It would be like trying to grab a cow's tongue. I would yank down hard on that flapping pink bib. I'd pull it up over his face and smother him with it. I'd cut it off and wear it like a hat while I danced around the room. Ten pounds of cornmeal. A small wooden chest with a little blood and a tuft of hair on the corner. That'll wipe right off. A woman's velvet wrap. The chain on this watch is broken. Oh, I must have dropped it. I see. Mud, you used to be more careful. I am careful. I take great care in my... Acquisitions. Acquisitions. Here's three silver dollars. And while I do enjoy seeing your snarling face, Mud, take some time off. I don't need anything for a while. Don't come back for another week. We don't want people to talk. Okay, Mud? Okay? Certainly, Bulger. Certainly. 
The sun shined. The streets were busy. Baldur didn't need anything. It seemed my social calendar had an opening. If I had been back in Ireland, I would have grabbed some of my friends and we'd pissed the day away in the pub. I had been in this rat hall for years, and I had no friends in Pleasure Town to speak of. Rudd was too soft to be any fun, and Galdi and Bulger, when they were a paycheck, everyone would look at me sideways. When they heard me talk, they flinched, like my words hurt their ears. What are you looking at, you old biddy? Well, I never. Come here, darling. That's right. Keep your daughter close to your skirts or I'll eat her up for lunch. Boil her like a cabbage. (laughs) Three dollars. Three dollars. Five cents times twenty. I could sit at the saloon across the street and drink myself... Sixty points. I could get a bath and a shave over at Galdi's if she's not passed out from the opium and then get 50 points. I could get a bath, a shave and a meal and then get 35 points. No, 40 points. I want a steak and a potato. I may want two steaks and two potatoes. 30 points because I will probably get a piece of pie and coffee. Or I could just go to Bordello Bonsieur. That Tallulah was a good girl. This tanking is making my head etch. Get your greased head out of that trough. I don't take orders from you, Clayton. Not anymore. You should. I keep you from being stupid, because that's what you are. Stupid. I'm not stupid. I got this, don't I? Put that back in your pocket. Someone will see you. Stole it from that coat we lifted. It's lovely, isn't that? Shiny and blue. That dark, rumbly cloud in the middle of it. Look how the sun shines off it. This will make me rich someday. I'll sell it to someone richer than Bulger. It brings me luck. You want to join me, Mud? You want to come walking with me? Keep flashing that gem around. Someone's gonna cut your throat from ear to ear, and that sneering smile of yours will be permanent. Ah, even in death you're a smile, Spartyar. To Bordella Bonsiar it is. You never step foot in that place. It will give my noggin a rest. Welcome to Bordello Bonsoir. Oh, Mr. Mud. You know you were never to come back to our fine establishment. I know, I know, Miss Marjorie. A little misunderstanding is out. You broke Tallulah's jaw. If you want to play rough, I'll set you up with Drake. Drake! <laughs> oh, look, it's Mr. Sunshine. I don't want no trouble. I have money. I can pay. I'll behave myself. I... I promise. I just need... What do you need? I need you to get your smelly lips away from my nose. Have you been licking your own arsehole, you big dog? I'm going to bust your head open like a coconut. I'm sure I'd be afraid if I knew what that was. Take him out back. 
away from the customers. <laughs> Sitting around pretty things all day makes me just want to slug something. Your face ain't pretty. I'm going to enjoy pounding the ugly out of it. Drake. Drake, please don't hit the man. Not even once, Miss Adri? Okay, once, but... <laughs> Bloody hell! What should I tell Miss Marjorie? Tell her you beat him to a very impressive pulp and the chickens are shitting down his throat as he lies unconscious. If he gives you a lick of trouble, call me. I'll make sure that's exactly what happens. Thank you, Drake. Here's a piece of silver for your troubles. You keep it, Miss Adri. That bop on his nose was my payment. My thoughts were all nipping and biting at each other. I wanted to pull back his head and tear out the skin on his throat with my fingernails. I wanted to dig my heels into his bollocks and grind them into pudding. Here's a handkerchief. I wouldn't want to get it all bloody. I've got my sleeve. Thank you, just the same. I had never seen eyes prettier. They were not blue, not green. I think they were lavender. Like the flowers that grew on the hill outside of our house in Ireland. She smelled like the sea in the summer. Do you work for Miss Marjorie? I have three silver dollars. No. No, I don't work for her. I help her. I give the girls elocution lessons. I saw you step out of the general store earlier. You looked troubled. I thought I could help. Help? I don't need no helping. You looked like a man who had a lot on his mind. I'm very good at soothing troubled waters. Miss Marjorie has rented a room to me here above the coach house. Why don't you come in and join me for some tea? I find tea in the afternoon quite refreshing. I had had good days and I had had bad days. And this was turning out to be a very good day. When I would think too much... That's when things would go bad. My thoughts, they'd get tangled up like snakes squeezing the life out of each other. But here I was, following a beautiful lass up a stairway to heaven. I was going to be spending the afternoon with a lady and get to keep my three dollars. This must be what it's like to be married, I had thought. Her apartment had many fabricy things, pillows, curtains, frilly things here and there. And there was fabric in places I expected, like on the sofa and the chairs. But then every little table had a tablecloth with fringe. Even her kerosene lamps had fabric shades with fringe. Everything was so soft. You live here alone, do you? I do indeed. That's very rare. A pretty woman like yourself living alone. It's temporary. Until my father can join me. Do I have any reason to feel unsafe, Mr. Mudd? Not from me. Miss Adri, is it? Please, call me Adrienne. Well, Miss Adrian, with me, you're as safe as a safe. Inside a safe. Inside a bank. Inside a safe. Well, that sounds very safe. Adrian sat me down on a big chair. It must be what the King of England feels like when he sits on his throne. It felt just right. 
She then lit a small stove and put a kettle on. Her place was filled with little disses and dots. On the small table next to me was a small silver box with etchings on it that looked like spider webs or tree limbs. I didn't get a close look at it because I slipped it into my pocket. I knew it would fetch a good take from Bulger. Mr. Mudd, you are quite the curiosity. A handsome young man in a town where any woman would feel lucky to have you adorn their arm while strolling down the street. Me? Well, yes. I suppose I have a lot to offer. Adrian powered me a cup of tea. It smelled like flowers. It tasted like honey. And you clearly feel strongly about Pleasure Town. I do. You've been here for... for how long? Twenty years or so? You made yourself a family here. That man that runs the general store... Bulger? Yes. You two seem close. And his mother, the one that runs the boarding house? Galdi? A fine, upstanding woman with a knack for business. True. She rents me my room in exchange for a small fee and the... occasional helping hand. Anyone else? No. Not really. I heard you have a sister. You seem to know quite a bit about me. When a man catches a woman's eye, she has her way of finding things out about him. She was telling me all about herself, I think. Or maybe she was telling me more about me. I found it hard to listen. The air was sweet, like molasses. And her hair. I wanted to touch her hair. I wanted to feel her hair in my fists. Maybe she was a squealer, I thought. Clayton was silent. No feckin' opinion to spit out of her drain hall. My sister must have taken a stroll out of my squirmy brain. Adrian began telling me something. Something about how she'd been looking for me. About how I'm the one she'd been searching for. She was telling me... I'm special. Michael, you're a special boy, Michael. You stay after today and help me clean up the schoolhouse. Would you like that, Michael? Certainly, Miss Nara. Miss Nara. My grade school teacher. She was lovely. She treated me like... like I was a human. I always wanted to do good by her. I worked hard on my lessons. I sat up front. I couldn't get enough of Miss Nara. I didn't know I could feel this way. Home. Home was never a home. It was the house where I lived. Clayton did what she could to protect me. But here, with Miss Nara, this is where I felt... loved. You have time to wipe off slates, but not to help your auntie at home? Come here, Mud. Mrs. McGuire, Michael is just helping me a wee bit. He's my charge, you see. He's been neglecting his duties to his Auntie Ida, haven't you, Mud? I... What's that? Speak up, boy! Yes, I said yes. Come here. I said come here! My ear! My ear. My boy, my ear. I'll twist it off and feed it to the piggies if I want. What's the matter, Mud? You going to squeal, are you? 
Are you a squealer? No. What's that? I cannot hear you. No. Right to please, you're My Auntie Aita was a large woman who worked the land hard, made of muscle and gristle and teats the size of feed bags. She could swat Clayton and me like we were nothing but gnats. We were left on a doorstep like abandoned kittens when we were babes. She was our neighbour. As soon as we could wobble, she worked us hard and threatened to throw us in a bag and drown us in the pond if we didn't mind her. Now she was climbing on top of Miss Nara as she lied there on her stomach. Auntie Ida held her down with her hips and pulled back Miss Nara's hair. She kept whispering to her. Are you a squealer? That was my last day of schooling. The school closed for a few weeks while Miss Nora licked her wounds. I spent the rest of my boyhood days helping on our farm. I couldn't fight back. Auntie beat the ever-living piss out of me. All the time. Sometimes she had a raisin. Most of the time she made him up. Clayton did her best to keep her away from me. We'd go for long walks across the land when we could. She'd boss me around the bed, but she never raised a hand to me. Not like my dear Ida. I only saw Miss Nara one other time. I was in the town picking up supplies and I saw her across the way. She saw me. I know she saw me. I smiled. Then she turned and walked away. Ignore me, she did. There were times I'd be left alone with the pigs. I could stand in the middle of them and kick them around the pin to show them who was boss. Them pigs were afraid of me. When Auntie would want one cut up for sale, she'd let me do that. I did that well. Real well. If my aunt were ever proud of me, it was when I put a slaughtered pig on her kitchen table. I would grab a live pig by the ear, a sticking knife in my other hand, and I'd whisper to them, Are you a squealer? Very bad, very bad indeed. 
was going to make my first wish on the Sintamani Stone to be your death, but why waste my breath when it's so much easier to poison your tea? I'll have Drake clean up this mess. He'll do that for three silver dollars. He can feed you to the pigs. They eat all sorts of garbage. <laughs> Everything got blurry. I could no longer see her, and I could just barely catch the scent of her hair. I felt very calm. The chill will pass. It will. No, I guess not. I just don't notice it as much. I should have listened to you, Clayton. Of course you should have. What do we do now? Let's go for a walk. Pleasure Town will return in a moment. Like I said, violence has to be taught. Guess some people are better students than others. Quite true. But no matter one's aptitude, the lesson always leaves a mark. disguises may be thin we try hard to hide and it is in this struggle the one between our true selves and the selves others see that the defining moment of my life occurred it began from a passage my brother Eli carried around with him from W.E.B. Du Bois The Souls of Black Folk which he read to me often after the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and Mongolian, the Negro is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. But while my brother carried that passage inside his coat pocket, I carried it within my soul, born with a veil and gifted with a second sight. I swear, Du Bois must have sat down with pen in hand and me in mind when he wrote that. For while I could see how white folks saw me, I harbored another form of second sight, the one that reveals to me an individual's true nature. That's the one I call the taste. The taste brought with it supernatural clarity. But what was clearest was often ugly, full of bigotry and the bitterness of hate. The bitter taste never left my mouth after that night. The night our father was shot 
and kill. The ringing of the gun and the metallic scent of blood haunted me, but not as much as my father's last word. You did this. After Paul's death, Eli elected himself to be my protector. To Eli, I was delicate, something to be coddled and swathed. And so, in addition to seeing myself through the eyes of white folks, I also saw myself through Eli. Hatred and helplessness. The double vision was enough to make me sick. Eli and I managed to get along pretty well without our parents. He set up a barbershop in our little Arkansas town and put me to work helping out. I'd clean up the hair after each cut and make small talk with the customers. Most days I never left his sight. He wouldn't let me. But on the rare chance I got to be by myself, I took it. I told you, goddammit, leave me alone. I'm a grown man. I'm 30 yards away. How did you know it was me? Squirrels don't walk on tiptoe. I just wanted to make sure you were all right. Did it ever occur to you that I go on these walks to get away from you? Okay, okay, I hear you, brother. You're just going to follow from 50 yards now, aren't you? So in addition to having eyes in the back of your head, you can also read minds now, too? Go back to cutting hair. Oh, come on, brother. You know I can't run the shop without you. Is that it? Or am I just your dog that you're trying to keep on a short leash? What's this all about, Jeb? I'm just trying to look out for you. That's just it. I don't need anyone to look out for me. Everyone thinks I can't handle things for myself, but I can. I can do just fine, sight or no sight. Suit yourself. But about ten paces away is a ditch that you were fixing to fall right into. Can't you just let me be? No, I can't. The day Pa died, I promised myself I would watch over you, provide for you, build you a better life. And I'm not going to let anyone stand in my way. Not even you. Now let's get back to the shop. We got some hair to cut. My brother always seemed content to live among those who hated us. His tunis was unreconciled. Passivity was how he tempered the fire that raged within. But I, I needed something else. My struggle was for my independence as both a black man and as a blind man. I needed to fight lest my tunis tear me apart. So, on that humid Arkansas night, I made sure to not let an opportunity escape. As soon as that man came in the door, the putrid taste of contempt spread across my tongue. It tasted acrid, like cigar smoke and spoiled catfish. Since in trouble... My brother tried to get the man to leave. Sorry, but we're closed for the night. Closed? I think you're mistaken. But all I could do was think about Du Bois' words, about my tuness. Didn't take any special powers to know this man saw me as an animal. What are you looking at, you half-wit? That's my brother, and he is not a half-wit, just blind. Well, half-wit... 
You can either show me to my chair, or you can bend over, take that broom of y'all's, and stick it up y'all. And that was when my rage burst to the surface. I was not going to be the subservient black man. I was not an animal to be tamed. I grabbed that man's throat. The bitterness of his hatred gave way to the saltiness of his fear. I felt the staccato beat of his heart against my palms, and I crushed it. And then I felt the life slowly leak out of his body. I stood over the man triumphantly. Finally, I was in control. My path would be mine to make. But then Eli stepped in. He bent down to slice the stranger's throat. Wanted to make sure the deed was done. Not because he too shared my rage, but because he knew a dead man couldn't implicate me. Even in the midst of murder, my brother was trying to be my guardian. We waited until midnight to dispose of the body. As Eli and I carried that limp weight through the Arkansas night, the reality of what I had done began to sink in. No longer was I solely a target for hatred or the fragile possession of my brother. I had taken another man's life. I was a murderer, and that made me no better than the heartless scoundrel who shot my father. When we tossed that body into the river, some part of me sank with it. I thought I had succeeded in setting myself on the path toward true freedom. But in reality, I had lost a part of my humanity, my soul. So I decided to take on a new identity, the mask of the silent watcher. My tongue could steal sense, but I would not use it to speak. Fleeing to Pleasure Town made it easy for me to maintain my silence. Nobody had ever heard me talk, and so nobody asked why I did not make a sound. Eli didn't really question it either. Figured the murder must have traumatized me. Besides, gave him the impression I was more helpless than I really was. I just let him keep on thinking that as I cleaned up around the shop. Maybe it would be a month, maybe it would be a year. Maybe it would be near lifetime, but I'd throw off my thinly veiled disguise and be the man I knew I was meant to be. I knew one day I'd reconcile my Tunis. Pleasure Town will return in a moment. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> leaves a mark. <laughs> and no matter one's aptitude, the lesson always leaves a mark. <laughs> because we were talking about students. <laughs> and students get marks. <laughs> mm, I get it. And I've heard every one of your jokes seven times over. It doesn't mean they're not funny. Yes. Yes, it does. Oh! 
Hey, Pleasure Town listeners. This is Emily Modaff, associate producer of the show. A friendly reminder that we are an interactive podcast and we love talking to you. So don't hesitate to email us at pleasuretownshow at gmail.com, tweet us at pleasuretownok, or find us on Facebook. And if you like the show, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. As always, it's time to thank the people who made this episode possible. This episode of Pleasure Town was written by Joe Janes and Brady Guy and performed by Shane Kenyon, Emily Modaff, Dan Kerr, Selena Boyer, Stephanie Shavara, Dave Frederking, Michaela Petro, Catherine Wolf, Michael Calicut, and Julian Stroop. Pleasure Town was created by Keith Ecker and Aaron Cahoe. Our associate producer is me, Emily Modaff, and our interns are Joe Courtney, Brady Guy, Tucker Lemost, Colin Wright, and Lizzie Seidenstricker, who's as safe as a safe inside a safe inside a bank inside a safe. Editorial oversight by Joe Dassault with help from Brad Helm and Colleen Pellisier. Original music was composed and performed by River Rising's Megan Diger and Tim Hazen and engineered by Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. Pleasure Town is a part of the WBEZ Podcast Network. You can discover more excellent shows at wbez.org slash podcasts. Pleasure Town is an ever-growing interactive narrative which relies on your creativity, your imagination, and especially your voice to expand the legend. Find out how you can join the story at pleasuretownshow.com.